Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello, hello, and welcome back from your weekend. This is Colin. Uh, and today on the show, uh, we're going to do our usual three topics that we do on Monday. I mean, we don't do the same three topics every Monday. That would be very boring. Uh, but uh, towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about the nomination. We've already talked about this once before, but now as she uh, goes before the confirmation committee, we want to talk about the nomination of Deb Holland, who if confirmed, and it looks like she probably will be confirmed, uh, will be, I believe, our first Native American cabinet member, Secretary of the Interior, um, and her hearings have been, I would think it's fair to say, unlike other hearings. <laughs> she, she brings who she is in a laudable uh, way to those hearings. In the middle segment, we're going to talk about really, it, it is like an Agatha Christie mystery. When you look at COVID figures across the globe, it does appear that some of the poorest countries have dramatically lower death rates, like one-tenth the U.S. death rate. And there probably isn't just one reason for it. It may be a constellation of reasons, but that constellation has some very interesting stars in it. We will talk about that. But we're going to begin with um, electoral politics and the electoral process itself. Uh, and so, you know, you might have heard me say this before the news, but I mean, the Republican Party at a national level, they're outnumbered. Uh, they, I'm thinking, I think uh, of the last eight presidential cycles, I believe they have won the popular vote exactly once. That would be in 2004. Uh, but typically, more people vote for the Democratic nominee. Uh, and even if you look at the total votes cast in U.S. Senate elections, and of course those are divided kind of in, into three cohorts, but in most cycles, lately, the uh, Democratic majority, the Democratic total for all the votes for Senate has exceeded the Republican total. So what do you do when you're outnumbered? Well, I mean, it's no secret that the Republicans have done as much as they can at times to try to make sure that certain groups of people do not vote. But really, in the last cycle, that didn't work either. They lost the White House. They, they, they didn't hold the Electoral College the way they often do when they lose the popular vote. And they didn't hold the Senate. Uh, so all the structural advantages they have through the Constitution still did not give them uh, the majorities that they seek and that they often get despite being outnumbered. So what do you do? How do you think about that? Well, a very well-known person on Sunday uh, in the late afternoon, early evening, speaking uh, at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, uh, offered kind of a playbook. Kat, let's hear that. We need election integrity and election reform immediately. Republicans should be the party of honest elections that can give everyone confidence in the future of our country. Without honest elections, who has confidence? Who has confidence? This issue is being studied and examined, but the reality is you cannot have a situation where ballots are indiscriminately pouring in from all over the country, tens of millions of ballots, where are they coming from? They're coming all over the place. Where illegal aliens and dead people are voting and many other horrible things are happening that are too voluminous to even mention. But people know, I mean, it's being studied and 
The level of dishonesty is not to be believed. We have a very sick and corrupt electoral process that must be fixed immediately. This election was rigged. All right. Well, you heard it. I mean, people know. I mean, it's being studied. Uh, so that was, uh, believe, the former president of the United States, uh, uh, Mr. Donald Trump, joining us now to talk about um, efforts that are afoot already to further handicap voting rights in this country, and maybe actually a couple of bills in the Congress itself uh, that would kind of go in the opposite direction, is Ari Berman, a senior re- reporter at Mother Jones covering voter rights, uh, voting rights, and he's the author of Give Us the Ballot, the Modern struggle for voting rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome to the show. Hey, Colin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, Let's start with a kind of um, circular kind of chicken and egg thing that we just heard there uh, in uh, former President Trump's speech. Uh, People don't have confidence uh, in the election results. Well, the reason they don't have confidence in the election results, I think, is largely because President Trump and a lot of other Republican uh, officials keep telling them not to have confidence uh, in the election results. I mean, when you look at the election results, there isn't really any empirical reason not to have confidence in them, right? That's absolutely right. And I I did my best to not listen to Trump's speech. So I appreciate you playing the audio and uh, having and making me relive (laughs) relive it. Uh, But that's absolutely right. They manufactured a crisis. They told people the election was stolen, even though everyone knows it wasn't. And then they used the crisis that they manufactured to then push for all of these new restrictions on voting. And I think this was always where it was headed. I think that so many Republicans decided not to denounce Donald Trump when he was lying about the election because they believed that those lies could be useful to them in the future, even though they knew that the election was fair. Uh, They knew it because many of those Republicans were elected back into power. So if the election was so rigged, why would Republicans remain in control of all of these key swing states uh, that they control in terms of the state legislature? Uh, But they knew that the useful corollary would be that so many of their voters believe that now is the time to take action on what Trump called, quote unquote, election reform, which basically means passing all of these new restrictions on voting. They could point to the perception that there were some sort of foul play as a reason to then put in place all of these new measures restricting access to the ballot. Now, one place that they have done rather well is in controlling state legislatures. And that, of course, is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of this stuff. Now, to have you, Ari Berman, tell us everything that's going on in that regard would be like uh, having a bunch of octopuses play whack-a-mole. There's uh, at least 165 bills that are either introduced, pre-filed, or carried over, according to your reporting. We can't talk about all of them. But maybe let's start at the weight hot center of this. Uh, and I, I guess I shouldn't have said white, but um, and, and that's Georgia. Obviously, the stuff that happened in Georgia, first in the presidential election and then in the two Senate runoffs, sort of not what the Republicans want to see, probably not what the Republicans expected to see. And in fact, that's often one of the arguments that Trump uses is that, well, I was expected to win these places. So if I didn't win them, there must have been chicanery. But uh, obviously, in Georgia, they're not eager to have certain people in Georgia. The Republican Party is not eager to have have this happen anymore. What are they doing about it? 
You're right. Georgia is really ground zero for these new efforts to restrict voting rights after Joe Biden won the state in November and then it unexpectedly elected two Democratic senators in the runoffs in January. And and Republicans have really launched a sweeping rewrite of the state's election system. Uh, Bills have been filed to try to cut weekend voting hours, to restrict mail ballot drop boxes, to get rid of automatic voter registration, to even get rid of no excuse absentee voting. Uh, And these are changes that would affect millions and millions of voters. You look at bills introduced to to get rid of automatic voter registration. Five million of 7.6 million voters in Georgia used automatic registration to register to vote at the DMV. 1.3 million people used mail voting in the last election. And now you would need a very specific excuse to be able to vote by mail. Like you'd have to be over 65 or, or out of town or have a conflict that would prevent you from voting in person. You couldn't just get an absentee ballot for any reason, like 34 states uh, have as as their laws uh, currently. Uh, talking about cutting weekend voting. That's when um, Black churches on Sunday in particular tend to hold souls to the polls voter mobilization drives. And the fascinating thing about Georgia is the Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, said over and over that the election was secure, that Donald Trump was lying about the election in Georgia. They had three recounts in the presidential race that found no evidence of fraud. And yet Republicans are still trying to restrict voting rights in a state where Republican leaders have said there's no reason to change the system. Um, It's difficult to predict outcomes, but I mean, there's no reason to suppose they won't get a lot of what they're seeking, given the way the numbers work in the legislature. Is that correct? There are some divides. There are some Republicans that want to get rid of no excuse absentee voting, and there are some Republicans that don't want to get rid of it. There are some Republicans that want to get rid of automatic voter registration. There are some Republicans that don't want to uh, get rid of it. Remember, Republicans wrote every aspect of Georgia's voting system. This has been a red state uh, until very recently. And so a lot of Republicans use these voting methods that they're trying to get rid of. Uh, Democrats used mail voting more than Republicans in the last election because Donald Trump demonized mail voting, but 450,000 thousand Republicans in Georgia still voted by mail. Uh, millions of Republicans have taken advantage of automatic voter registration. Lots of Republicans use early voting in Georgia. Until January 5th, Republicans beat Democrats in early voting in Georgia. And so there are divides because some Republicans believe that even though they lost in November and January, the state's voting laws, which they wrote, have worked pretty well for them historically. Then there's other Republicans that see the demographic changes in Georgia. They see black voters and voters of color being a larger part of the electorate. They see them using methods like early voting and mail voting, and they want to get rid of them or cut them back, even if that's going to hurt some Republicans because they believe it's going to hurt Democrats more. So um, numerically, uh, the the number the the leader in sheer number of bills proposed, although that could be very misleading. A lot of bills have a lot of things wrapped into them, but uh, would be Arizona, uh, also a, a state that went differently than some Republicans might have hoped, and a state that seems to be uh, getting more purple, if not more blue, uh, all the time. Um, before we go to my, what might be the legislature, we should note that uh, I believe on Tuesday we're going to hear oral arguments in an Arizona voting rights case. Ari, tell us about that case. It's a really important case, uh, not necessarily for the specifics of the case, but for the broader implications. Uh, There are two voting rights uh, cases from Arizona that have 
been combined into one argument for the Supreme Court uh, tomorrow. And they challenged two restrictions on voting in Arizona, a ban on out-of-precinct voting. So if you show up in the wrong precinct, your vote doesn't count. And a, ba- a ban on someone collecting ballots, basically what is called ballot harvesting. Now, those two parts of the law are relatively inconsequential. But the bigger story of the Supreme Court case is that Republican plaintiffs who are uh, now defendants in this case, uh, they want to get rid of a key section of the Voting Rights Act. Remember, in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act and ruled that states with long history of discrimination, like Georgia and Arizona, no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. But there's still another part of the Voting Rights Act called Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that applies nationwide. So if you pass a new restriction on voting in Connecticut, for example, and it can be proven that it disproportionately affects minority voters, it can be struck down under this remaining section of the Voting Rights Act. Well, now Republicans want to weaken that section of the Voting Rights Act as well, because they argue it's being abused by courts and civil rights groups to strike down laws that they don't believe are discriminatory. So that is the bigger consequence of this case. Will the Voting Rights Act, even though weakened, still provide some level of protection for minority voters? Or will the Voting Rights Act be so weak that basically it provides no defense against modern day voter suppression efforts? Right. And I think, you know, uh, I mean, you know way more about this than, than I do, but it would probably be a little bit misleading to say that these, uh, that the the provisions that are being attacked in the case are are de minimis. Um, the Native American vote was a, a big tipping point uh, in Arizona, and certainly that that sort of ballot harvesting thing. Uh, a lot of Native Americans are living in reservations where they can't easily get to where they need to go. Some people don't even really have clear mailing addresses. Um, the way maybe we we might uh, here in West Hartford, Connecticut, um, and and the multiple polling sites thing. I think also uh, works better for. And, and results in more votes cast, I believe, by uh, people of color. So these were key demographics in Arizona. It's not a big surprise that the Republicans would be trying to limit that kind of voting. Yes. I mean, th- these aren't in- inconsequential changes. You're, you're right. I mean, there were over 30,000 ballots that were thrown out because people showed up to the wrong precinct, even though their votes for statewide offices uh, should still be counted. And there are Native American voters, Latino voters that live in very rural parts of Arizona that don't have reliable mail service. So they rely on people uh, to drop their ballots off for them. Um, that is now criminalized under the bill. But I think the broader significance of this is not these specific voting changes. It's that the fact that the Voting Rights Act could be weakened for all voters in every state uh, if the conservative plaintiffs have their way. And there's some very powerful Republicans lining up in this case. There was an amicus brief filed by Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell that basically said that the Ninth Circuit opinion striking down these restrictions on voting in Arizona was unconstitutional. And therefore, uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act would be rendered unconstitutional if that decision was allowed to stand. Um, That's a very big deal because you're talking about all of these restrictions on voting um, being pushed around the country. At the same time, conservative groups and Republican groups are asking the court to weaken the Voting Rights Act at the very moment when civil rights groups and others say that the Voting Rights Act is more important than ever because it still provides some protection against discriminatory voting laws. And if it's struck down altogether or, or rendered inoperative, then there will be no protection uh, in the courts against all of these efforts that we're currently seeing. Right. Nobody listens to Ted Cruz anyway. But um, the um, 
Uh, it'll also be uh, obviously a test of this particular court configuration. Of course, it's Kavanaugh, uh, Coney Barrett. Um, we'll, I don't know how much of a sense intuitively, and, and obviously interrogatories don't always tell you that much, but uh, sooner or later we're going to find out how this particular court feels about voting rights. Is there any reason to think we know anything in advance? There's reason to think that they're going to be skeptical of efforts to try to prevent protect voting rights because they have been in the past. I mean, remember, it was John Roberts, who is now the ostensible moderate on the court's conservative wing, who wrote the majority opinion gutting the Voting Rights Act. And it was John Roberts when he was a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department back in the 1980s that led the effort to try to weaken Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is now an issue in this case. So, I mean, the guy with the longest history of antagonism to the Voting Rights Act is now in some ways the swing justice of the court. And not just the swing justice, but I mean, really, you need to get too conservative. So I think almost the best outcome here um, for civil rights groups is to hope that the Supreme Court does as little damage as possible, that they might reject the Ninth Circuit uh, opinion striking down these voting restrictions, but they won't weaken the rest of the Voting Rights Act. Because I think there's very, very little chance that they uphold the opinion that struck down these laws, just because the court has taken the position in many, many cases that state legislatures should basically be free to enact restrictions on voting. They haven't gone along with the extreme things that Donald Trump wanted to do, flat out stealing the election. But when it comes to states changing their election laws, they've very been very differential to that part of it. So uh, our time is limited, Ari, but I wanted to just sort of mention, uh, even though we can't have nice things anymore, uh, particularly because of the filibuster, there are a couple of major voting rights bills, pro-voting rights bills, uh, at least uh, trying to make their way uh, through Congress. Uh, Talk about H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act. That's right. Uh, There is legislation before the House that is expected to pass this week called the For the People Act, which is really the most significant uh, democracy reform bill in a generation. It would have major protections for voting rights uh, against money in politics uh, and for more ethics in government. The voting uh, provisions in particular are very noteworthy because it would have federal standards uh, for elections. So there would be early voting in every state, automatic registration in every state, election day registration in every state, nonpartisan redistricting in in every state for federal elections. And uh, this would go a long way towards counteracting the kind of suppression we're seeing at the state level and the kind of rampant gerrymandering that we're seeing at the state level as well. Uh, And so I think it's a very significant bill. Um, Right now, it doesn't have a chance to pass the Senate uh, if Democrats don't get rid of the filibuster because there are not 60 votes, there are not 10 Republican votes uh, for this bill. Um, But it's interesting because the filibuster was historically used to block civil rights laws and to block voting rights laws before the 1960s. And if you don't get rid of it now, it's going to be used once again to block efforts to try to expand voting rights. And so there's a lot of symmetry here in terms of the fights of the past and the fights of the present when it comes to the filibuster being used to block things that would lead to greater expansion of the franchise and greater expansion of voting rights for all Americans. Symmetry, but fearful symmetry, as the poet would say. All right, uh, Ari Berman, we have to stop there, but there's a lot more to cover. And the best way for you, the listener, to do that is to read the reporting that Ari Berman is doing at Mother Jones, where he covers um, voting rights and is the author of Give Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. All right, we'll take a break. Thanks to Ari. Take a break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about COVID. Kind of a 
a fascinating, fascinating mystery. I mean, not fascinating for the sake of entertaining us, but fascinating anyway. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, now it is time to turn our attention towards COVID-19, as we so often do on Mondays, uh, and joining us now. Well, before I introduce them, let me just sort of say that um, I was catching up on my New Yorkers, and I'm reading this article, this really fascinating article, about the apparent phenomenon of countries that are uh, comparatively poor having unusually low death rates, unusually low particularly when compared to, for example, the U.S. death rate from COVID. Not necessarily fewer cases, uh, not, necessary, uh, not necessarily a lower rate uh, of prior infection as detected by seroprevalence, but people aren't dying there, uh, or at least they're not being reported as dying there. And it really was kind of written like uh, an Agatha Christie mystery with invocations, in fact, uh, of her throughout. So I just couldn't put it down. It was fascinating. Well, quoted in the article, I was excited to see, uh, was uh, our guest today, Ahmed Mushfik Mubarak, uh, a professor of economics at Yale University with concurrent appointments in the Department of Economics and in the School of Management. He's the founder and faculty director of the Yale Research Innovation uh, an Initiative on Innovation and Scale. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Colin. And Sid Mukherjee is a fantastic writer at The New Yorker. Yeah, that was just a, an amazing article. Well, before we get to it, we should just very specifically highlight your particular research, the stuff that you and your team uh, are doing through uh, phone surveys uh, with five poorer countries uh, where living standards have declined in the months uh, during and after COVID. So uh, tell us tell us what you're finding there. Uh, yeah, so I've been um, working on I guess, COVID response policies, both in rich and poor countries. And one of the things we tried to do early on, you know, starting in late March, is just to get a sense of what the economic shock has been. And this is normally a little difficult to do because especially in developing countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, many people are in the informal sector. So you can't just look at government records and administrative records and quickly figure out like you can in the US, whether people are hurting and how they're hurting because people are just not in official roles. So what we ended up doing was um, construct many different samples, about 16 different samples in nine different countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And we had a set of surveys, phone surveys running, uh, phone because it's otherwise, you know, during a pandemic, it's otherwise difficult to reach them. And, um, and, and we tracked, you know, what's happening to income, employment, food security, social distancing, mask use, et cetera. And the striking finding is that even though the countries are very heterogeneous, like, you know, there are middle-income countries like, like uh, Colombia in, in South America or very poor countries like Sierra Leone in Africa, right? You see this very broad-based staggering losses in income employment. So the median, um, in the median survey, about 70% of people are reporting losses in income and employment. And in poor countries, this actually also translates into an increase in food insecurity. So people are actually going hungry. So the way they're um, coping or not coping is by cutting back on meals or restricting, por restricting portion sizes, et cetera. 
So one of the things that might surprise people is that some of these countries, some of the smaller countries in particular, uh, were able, maybe because of their size, uh, to impose stricter lockdown measures to to crush that virus. Um, So that's the good news. The bad news is, as you're saying, uh, that that has consequences. Yes. Um, So I think COVID response policies in many smaller countries and not just smaller, but poorer countries, even if they're not smaller, uh, have been much better than what we've experienced here. Um, I think, you know, the the leadership, you know, took it much more seriously. Uh, and I, I think that was a factor. The fact that some of these countries like Sierra Leone that I mentioned had experience with the Ebola crisis uh, before, that also mattered because they were well positioned to to respond to, a, to this new threat. Um, and there are other differences between rich and poor countries, such as demographic differences that also matter a lot. Um, uh, so the demographic difference I'm referring to is the age distribution of the population. Right? So we knew early on that um, COVID was much more risky and fatal for the elderly. Right? And in uh, developing countries, there's actually a six-fold difference in the proportion of the population that's elderly. It's about 3% in low-income countries, and about 18% of the population is above the age of 65 in high-income countries. And that that difference is quite large in terms of how risky and threatening COVID is for the whole population. Although I think it was you who pointed out in, in the New Yorker article, and this kind of segues us a little bit into that, there's also differences in where the elderly population is located in a country. In other words, uh, if you are, if we're warehousing uh, older people, as we tend to do, not to uh, <laughs> not to stigmatize them that way, but if everybody's all collected up in a bunch of nursing homes, uh, you're creating big sitting ducks, right? Exactly. And um, and in fact, Connecticut is a good example of this, where a disproportionate number of COVID deaths happened at nursing homes. Um, and then we also know we've been hearing a lot about these cases in New York as well. Uh, yeah. So then, you know, it boils down to like, if, if you want to use this to explain the experience of rich versus poor countries, it boils down to the question of, OK, if you were to warehouse elderly, so they're next to each other and we create you know, super spreader events at exactly the wrong places, a set of people who are particularly vulnerable, right? How bad is that relative to, say, in in uh, rural sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, you have multi-generational families, so you can't isolate uh, uh, the elderly. And so people are going to be, you know, in poorer countries, people are going to be forced to go to markets to still earn a living because you don't have as much of a social safety net as you do here. And so the younger people in the family are going out to markets, going out for work, and they're coming back home, and the elderly actually live with them. Right. right. And that could, uh, that could be a different source of risk. So I guess it boils down to, like, how big each factor is. Yeah. And, I mean, here we've kind of almost collateralized our our older population. I mean, this is a for-profit industry. There are still some nonprofit nursing homes here in Connecticut, but basically national for-profit companies uh, have realized that t- taking care of older people can be quite profitable. Uh, and so they do it. And so you, ha- you have kind of an economic scale that's pointing right. you in that direction, right? right? And that's a really interesting point because normally, you know, you might think, that, oh, the for-profit industry has the right, maybe the right incentives in order to keep their business going, and they would have taken the right precautions for their clients, even if the government is failing at some level, right? But uh, but we, we somehow it didn't happen. Like, people didn't react well. Uh, even this for-profit corporation didn't react well. And so my colleague, Judy Chevalier, and other colleagues in the school, Yale School of Public Health 
has has done research on the uh, on the patterns of uh, nursing home uh, mortality. And what you find is, or they, what they find is that, um, like, you know, the fact that nursing homes share staff, like two different nursing homes. So these staff members were moving from home one to home two and carrying disease from one place to the other. So to go back to this sort of this mystery, where in fact in some of these countries, I mean, you really have like one tenth the death rate uh, of what we have, and and it's probably not one explanation. Uh, I think it's a, it's probably multiple explanations. But um, one of the things that you explored would be just sort of the question of stigma. Does yeah. uh, do, does everybody uh, feel the same way about acknowledging a COVID nineteen infection? Right. So, so let me. I'll, I'll. I'll make a list of some of the factors that might matter as you as you requested. But I'll. I'll just start by saying that even after I list all these factors, the mystery kind of remains. And that that was uh, the point of the article where Siddharth Mukherjee, the writer, and I went back and forth. I put all these factors in a model. Like I, I take a much more dry approach to answering these questions, whereas he, he you know, he weaves it into a beautiful narrative. <laughs> but after we did all of this, we're like, oh, you know what? We still haven't been able to figure it out. Okay, so that's it. having said that, so here are the factors we've already talked about. So one is the differences in the age distribution of the population. The fact that um, the populations in Africa are much more youthful may have protected them. That's one. Second, we've talked about um, like the role of leadership and the policy responses um, that mattered. So just to give you one quick anecdote, uh, when the president of Senegal, Macky Sall, when he was exposed to COVID, he didn't even have it himself, right? He was just in the presence of somebody who tested positive. He made a very public decision back then to just like quarantine and uh, and let everybody in the country know what he was doing and how he was responding, right? And that has a demonstration effect. Uh, it's, a, it's a way in which our own leaders had failed at the same time when, you know, you were theatrically taking off masks rather than rather than encouraging people to uh, to be to take protective measures. That's two. Second, uh, second, uh, third one that I said was uh, wide variation in preparedness and in responses. So, ironically, having uh, had other crises, crises uh, was protective. Uh, fourth is like how isolated the countries are. So, what one thing that's um, the patterns that are evident in the data is that countries that are less connected to others through trade, tourism, migration links, right? They've, uh, they've been more protected. And finally, the one factor that we have to account for is that perhaps this is all differential reporting or misreporting, right? The idea is that, oh, we just happen to know all these, about all these cases and deaths in the US because it gets accurately diagnosed. In poor countries, we just don't know, right? So there's something to that, but it's not going to explain away this tenfold difference uh, based on other better source of data that we have. And so why would there be misreporting? And that's, that's the idea of stigma. So something we've seen in Bangladesh, for example, uh, or in, and in Pakistan, that um, COVID created a lot of misinformation and stigma early, such that people were worried that, oh, you know, if I report COVID, then I might not be able to uh, bury, bury my family member properly, right? Or I'll get stigmatized. I can't, I can't go to work. People won't want to be around me. People won't want to give me access to healthcare because they're worried about catching the disease. And so people then, you know, might have died quietly, right? And the cause of death maybe have, may have been listed as something else. So that, that might be part of the issue. 
Right. So, I, I mean, there are some things that militate against that, including like in, we saw in that article, even some instances of places, I think uh, Dharavi uh, in Mumbai is one of the examples where they set up field hospitals that they didn't need. Um, and so a reticence to report, I don't think would translate very easily into a reticence to go get help when you actually needed need it. it. Uh, and, yeah. and, and there's somebody else in, in the, uh, I think it's another economist uh, who says bodies don't lie. I mean, ultimately, you have X number of, uh, of deaths uh, sooner or later you're going to count them all and try to figure out how much over the average it is so it, you can say a little bit more about those things yeah yeah so exactly um so as i said uh, you know the misreporting may be some of it the stigma may be some of it but it's not going to be all of it and the reason is like when i was alluding to better data sources exactly what you're talking about so what you could do is actually just count forget about cause of death which may be misreported and just count total deaths right because even if cause of death is easy to hide an actual death in anywhere in the world is not so easy to, to hide. And, and so when you look at charts on excess deaths, right, you see that, oh, you know, that's not going to explain the tenfold difference. So when you look at and other types of creative data collection is like, you know, you could go to funeral homes and try to collect data from there. You could go to the first point of contact, like at village pharmacies, try to collect data there or um, burial um, grounds, et cetera, try to collect data there. And, uh, and, and you still see that the, uh, the puzzle remains, which is that the fatality rates in the US have been higher than what relative to African Asian, South Asian countries, relative to, um, and, and much higher than what we had predicted in relative terms. So to be honest, I was, uh, you know, if you had asked me in March, I would have been totally wrong about this, where I scrambled to start collecting data and tried to help the Bangladesh government and the Sierra Leone government prepare for their response because I was like deathly afraid of what was going to happen when COVID actually hit those countries. Given what I know about the poor healthcare infrastructure, I come from Bangladesh, that's where I grew up, right? And somehow those worries, I mean, I was, I was very afraid, but those worries in relative terms were un 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 unfounded. Well, I do think also, um, first of all, we should say about the death rates, too, and this was sort of fascinating. They did find some instances where death rates were way, way higher uh, over a spread of a couple of months during the pandemic. But then when they parsed those, they were finding that it just didn't scream out COVID. For example, it wasn't way more men than women. In other words, we, we know sort of various subpopulations that get hit harder. It, it didn't show up that way. But I come back to something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, too. I wonder how much of a factor it is. I'm thinking, I guess, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, having had some experiences, not just with e Ebola, but also probably with AIDS. In other words, taking public health cautions seriously, uh, actually doing some of the things. For example, Rwanda, I think, has had a pretty good experience uh, there, too. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if it does have to do with the fact that here in America, we're, we've been pretty shielded from from all this stuff uh, maybe we we don't know how to listen yeah uh for for sure so let me um yeah so I'll, i can tell you a little bit about africa and then i'm going to jump to another rich country that actually was able to crush the covid virus completely that i also have a connection to um so so on africa the first thing is that yeah if you know the countries in west africa that recently had ebola right they already had sort of very low hanging fruit, very cheap solutions already lined up. So just as an example, so there's something called a Veronica bucket, like associated with a Ghanaian um, uh, researcher name is Veronica who came up with this, which is like a really simple solution of 
a, a bucket with soap and water and you wash your hands. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you can put this bucket in front of all government, all buildings in Freetown, Sierra Leone. You can even put it at the entrances to remote villages, right? Because it's just a cheap and easy solution. And everybody took that seriously and they already had that experience and everybody was washing their hands coming in and out of buildings, right? And and then they closed the air, they shut the Freetown free airport down right away um, as, as soon as, as COVID hit. So part of it is that 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 experience helped, right? And the other part of it, as you said, is you know, people's reactions, their level of seriousness, whether they trust and follow uh, directives from uh, healthcare professionals, right? That also seems to matter. And here I'll, I'll just refer to another rich country that I, uh, so I, I said, I'm from Bangladesh. My wife happens to be from the Cayman Islands. Mm. So we decamped there um, for the last couple of months uh, because my, my dad lives with us and he's in a high, high risk category. So we, we took him there. And that country has completely crushed the virus. Okay, And the way they did it was like, uh, just to give you our anecdote, when we showed up in Cayman, we were greeted with people in hazmat suits. Uh, we were required to wash our hands and sanitize our hands like four or five times before they even would give us a pen to fill out immigration forms. We were taken in a government sanitized vehicle directly to our quarantine location, which I had you know, rented and the government had pre, um, uh, like looked at it to, to, to to satisfy their requirements that yes, this is this is a legitimate quarantine facility, etc. And so, th- so what happened is that with all these um, um, health uh, uh, guidelines in place and people listen, they've they've completely crushed the virus. And then after two weeks of quarantine, where it was like being in house arrest, where they put bracelets on us and we were uh, we couldn't leave our quarantine facility at all. Um, but after two weeks, you know, you get tested again, you're done. And then you live a normal life, right? And that's something, I mean, that's a tiny country. They've been managed doing it. But on the other hand, they're also a tourism dependent country. So in some ways, it's difficult for them to actually um, implement such uh, stringent policies uh, because it hurts tourism, obviously. Uh, but they managed to do it. And now they're, you know, they're living normal lives. It was great to be around, like, go out to restaurants and all restaurants are now doing fine. Um, and and it's not just a small country. New Zealand, Australia, that has opened up. The Australian Open happened just now, right? So like so like there is something to you know like going at it fully, crushing the virus, and then opening, which is good for both health and for the economy in the long run. We should mention one of the reasons we're having this conversation too. I mean, we're, uh, it just makes sense to have the conversation, uh, and it makes sense to care. And and this all may change a little bit. I mean, for example, Senegal in, in October, you, you were just like, "How do they do this? This is amazing." But they've had a very tough February too. This this disease is moving in different waves in different places. So we we haven't written the final chapters of this. But one thing that we know, uh, Mushvik, uh, as a uh, apropos of that, is until everybody gets a handle on this nobody completely has a handle on it it's a really small planet right that's right yeah that's a really important point and um and it's important to you know for me to make this appeal to policymakers in rich countries as well that so you know early on we talked about this dichotomy of like lives versus livelihoods right there was all this debate or should we protect lives or livelihoods actually we heard a lot more of this in countries like india bangladesh pakistan right and since then, it's become clear that this is a false dichotomy, right? And the reason is that if you don't feel, so there's two reasons. So one is that if, you know, you don't have social protection, your family's going hungry, you're not going to be able to abide by any social distancing guidelines. You're going to go out, you're going to do the desperate things like going to markets, trying to find work, right? And you're not going to be able to control the virus. And the second thing we've learned more from data in the United States 
is that it's not just about lockdowns. If rich people don't feel comfortable that the virus is under control, they won't come out regardless of the lockdown policy. And if they don't come out and spend money, then everybody suffers, right? Like the service service sector suffers. And what we've seen in data in the US is that it's actually poor people living in rich communities, rich zip codes that are suffering the most. Mm. And, and your point is, you know, is completely valid that look, it's, it's a, it's a pandemic, there's going to be a second wave, third wave, not all of us are going to um, have immunity, and it can come right back. So, so while all countries, rich countries have become more inward looking during this period, which is, you know, our populations need help, we can't lose sight of the fact that unless we get the disease under control elsewhere in Africa, Asia, this can really come right back to us. All right. I'm going to close. Betsy Kaplan wants us uh, to wrap this thing up. I have to close with a moment of preening self-congratulation that I'm personally very proud, (laughs) therefore very proud of, which is when this pandemic started, I couldn't have been a bigger ignoramus uh, about uh, bioscience uh, issues and and all the things that you kind of need to understand um, the the phenomenon and the conversation we're even having right now. So, and I've really tried to get myself up to speed, as listeners would know. And so I'm reading this article, this terrific article we're, talk, we're talking about. And halfway through it, I go, cross-reactive T-cells. We're going to, cross-reactive T-cells, they got to be coming. <laughs> they got to be part of this question. And I get like to the, like, almost the penultimate page, cross-reactive T-cells. And I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> I actually knew something. So, uh, and sorry, I'm sorry to uh have that moment of personal growth that I felt so exhibitionistic about. But you've been a terrific guest, and thank you so much. Uh, Ahmed Mushfik Mubarak is a professor of economics at Yale University with concurrent, I also don't know anything about economics too, so uh, concurrent appointments in the Department of Economics in the School of Management. Thanks for doing this. Oh, of course, and I'll come back and talk economics with you after you've read the textbook. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) sounds fair, sounds like a, a good deal. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back and we're gonna talk about Deb Holland. All right. Oh, welcome back. Boy, he was really great. I hope we can have him back. Apparently, I'm going to have to learn economics, though, and that might take me a while. But he's terrific, so I'll uh, I'll try to crush the textbook. Um, all right. Uh, thanks. Uh, special thanks go to uh, Kat uh, Pastor, who's there in the studio right now, making it possible. She's our technical producer, but she makes it possible for us to work remotely. If everything goes well, though, I'm going to be back in the studio not next Monday, but the following Monday. Uh, and I'm excited about that. I've not been in the studio for an entire year. Uh, all right. So, um, and also thanks to Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode too. We've got an uh, exciting week of shows coming, but I don't have time to tell you about that because we have to talk about something that we've referred to, I think, a couple of times on the show. The, one of the very interesting representative um, aspects of the Biden cabinet involves a U.S. representative, and that would be Deb Holland, a Democrat from New Mexico, who, if all goes well and swimmingly, and it looks like it probably will, uh, will be uh, the Secretary uh, of the Interior and the first Native American um, person to hold that uh, hold a cabinet post. So um, before we get to our guest, uh, let's uh, first 
of all, say that she appeared uh, before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, uh, chaired by Joe Manchin, uh, who's the actual majority leader of the Senate. Don't believe the thing about Chuck Schumer, uh, at least in terms of who gets to decide what happens. Uh, And so let's hear a, a little bit, I believe, of Deb Holland's opening statement right here. Pueblo woman, I was taught to value hard work. My mother is a Navy veteran, was a civil servant at the Bureau of Indian Education for 25 years, and she raised four kids as a military wife. My dad, the grandson of immigrants, was a 30-year career Marine who served in Vietnam. He received the Silver Star and is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. I spent summers in Mesita, our small village on Laguna Pueblo, the location of my grandparents' traditional home. It was there that I learned about my culture from my grandmother by watching her cook and by participating in traditional feast days and ceremonies. It was in the cornfields with my grandfather where I learned the importance of water and protecting our resources where I gained a deep respect for the earth. All right. So uh, joining us now uh, to talk about these hearings, uh, about the uh, candidacy, so to speak, uh, of Deb Holland to be Secretary of the Interior is Jenny Monet, a journalist and media critic reporting on indigenous affairs. She's the founder of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously Colonize, Decolonizing Your News Feed. Uh, she joins us now. Hi. Hello, Colin. How are you? Well, you know, I'm glad that you began uh, by saying that because that was another thing that Deb Holland did right right at the beginning of the hearing. I I pulled up the C-SPAN clip of it. She greeted them in a Native American language. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, Deb Holland and I share the same tribal affiliation, Laguna Pueblo, which is one of 19 Pueblos in the state of New Mexico. And our languages are very similar across the Pueblos, but they're also very distinct. And the language that she introduced herself in is known as Keres, the language of our ancestors. And I just have to tell you, I mean, it was extraordinarily powerful to hear that in a historic setting. uh, the way that, and it was just beautiful. I mean, it was it just kind of set a, a pretty remarkable tone, not just, I think, for Pueblo people, I think for all Indigenous peoples who are watching this moment. So watching, I watched chunks of the hearing, and these hearings, I mean, they tend to be a, at least a little bit confrontational. The uh, opposition party wants to, you know, maybe at least uh, ding somebody up a little bit or, or raise some questions. And it, it, there was there was some of that and also a lot of what are you going to do about this or what are you going to do about that, only to have it explained that that isn't even something that the Department of the Interior deals oh, with. Oh, there was many of those instances. You're absolutely right. I, I think I counted around five where um, – where lawmakers on both sides of the committee um, (laughs) were asking questions to Holland that absolutely had no place in the Department of the Interior. I'm thinking of questions around um, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, which handles um, Indian Health Services, um, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which actually is through um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, including the Keystone XL, which, right, which, you know, it was entirely leading into Deb Holland's hearing, um, you know, the the most friction was coming from the oil and gas industry. And we saw that, you know, in the aftermath, people were calling it a quote unquote proxy to the fossil fuel agenda of the Biden administration and arguing what that agenda is. And, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of that rhetoric just played uh, into the hearing when um, it, when it really has no place in the interior. 
Right. I, I think, you know, in a situation like that, too, there's a vested interest in the opposition party to paint a nominee like this as some kind of radical, as some kind of person who's going to bring in, uh, I don't know, almost a kind of Native American woo-woo set of ideas or something. Uh, and, and so there was an attempt to maybe try to fluster her that way. It didn't seem to work very well, though. It seemed as though maybe she'd had some prior experiences with white men trying to fluster her. <laughs> Men in general, I think. Um, I put out a weekly newsletter, as you've noted, called Indigenously Decolonizing Your Newsfeed. And I really try to center the message or the essay each week around things that you're just not seeing in your newsfeed. And uh, it really comes from a place of just knowing our tribal communities. I've, I've lived them, but I've also reported from them for as long as I've been a journalist, around 21 years now. And I have to say that when I was watching Holland's two days of really taking what some have called a double standard of beratement, maybe bias on women and women of color nominees under the Biden cabinet, um, you know, it struck me as well as a lot of other Pueblo people in general, particularly women, um, just the, uh, shall I say, conditioning <laughs> that is involved in, um, in dealing with patriarchy in general. Um, for those who don't really know a lot about Pueblo culture, um, our systems of government, our systems of uh, way of life and culture are incredibly patriarchal. Um, for instance, Deb Holland's um, village of which she speaks of in her opening remarks, Mesita, which is one of our six villages on the Pueblo of Laguna, it's considered one of our most traditional um, in which today where all the other villages across the reservation have allowed women to run for the Pueblo Council. Mesita, where she grew up and uh, came to understand our life ways, still has held true to some of the purest beliefs of our culture and those gender dynamics which have restricted women from going to our village meetings. Um, and in in lieu of, and in, in virtue of that, have um, barred them from running um, for any kind of tribal council position. And reservation-wide, what sticks for all of us is that we can never hold our, our highest office, which is as governor of the Pueblo. That's um, strictly reserved for men. Jenny Monet, I'm going to have to stop there, although this is fascinating. Journalist and media critic reporting on Indigenous affairs. Yeah, check out the newsletter, uh, Indigenously, Decolonizing Your Newsfeed. I get too many newsletters, but I might have to get this one anyway. Uh, thanks for doing this, and we will be back tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Oh, man. I don't.